Well, it's uh, good to be with everyone. My name is Pastor Joseph Bianco, and I welcome you to City Reform Presbyterian Church. Uh, I would invite our uh, children to head to Children's Church at this time, and they are also welcome to stay in the service. Um, so City Reformed was a church plant 19 years ago. Um, our mission is to the city of Pittsburgh, and we're continuing on that mission. So this is our morning service. Uh, we also have an evening service at a building we own in the Greenfield Chapel in Greenfield. You're welcome to attend that tonight, and there's some information in the bulletin about that. Um, let me pray, and then I'll read our word, and we'll get started. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity um, to uh, put ourselves under your word. Um, it's your very word to us, and we thank you that, uh, Lord, you've not left us in the dark, but you communicate to us, you care about us, and you've revealed your word to us, so help us to take it as such. Um, Father, we also pray for just recent events uh, in our city. Father, we remember um, the Tree of Life shooting and uh, just how that affected our city, particularly that congregation, uh, Lord, our neighbors. Um, Father, you tell us that the gospel is uh, first to the Jews, and so we pray for our Jewish neighbors. Uh, we pray for the, uh, the suffering they experience, the persecution. We pray for um, those who would celebrate Father's, today, Father's Day today uh, but are lacking their fathers. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to be a good neighbor to them. We pray that you would save them, that you would redeem them, that you would help us to be a, a, a loving and kind uh, neighbor. Um, Lord, I thank you that uh, there, in a sense, is some justice that was done. But, Lord, we also recognize that um, our justice system can't raise the dead. Uh, there's not true justice until you come again. And so, Father, we look uh, to your word and to the resurrection of Jesus even now, as we read this passage, we pray in the name of our Savior. Amen. All right, our reading is uh, from Matthew 22, um, verses 23 to 33. This is page 7 of your bulletin. The same day, <clears throat> Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So too, the second and third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. So our text is pretty interesting today, isn't it? We have all the elements of an exciting scene. We have uh, conflict, death, multiple marriages, and the resurrection of the dead. So there's a lot going on. And as the princess bride once said, 
but do not think it means what you think it means. This is not primarily a text about marriage, it's primarily a text about resurrection. So I want you to imagine for a moment a scenario where there is somebody in this world who has never seen a movie in their entire life. They don't know what a video is, like a screen, a film, anything like that. And you say to them, hey, would you like to see this movie? And so you show them a trailer and they watch the trailer and they say, wow, that was the best movie I've ever seen in my entire life. It was like two minutes long. It's fantastic. And you would say, wait a second, no, that's the trailer. It's not the movie. The movie is much, much better. In our text today, Jesus is challenging the Sadducees in their understanding of Scripture. The Sadducees are denying the movie, which is the resurrection. So this text is not really about marriage, but it's about atheism. It's about limiting God, denying what is spiritual. It's about functional atheism, where we cling to the good things in this life because we think that's all there is. There's nothing else later. It's about whether God is sufficient in this life and the life to come. And we find ourselves in the Sadducees. So Jesus says that God is sufficient. He's enough. That he's the God of power and that he's the God of the living and not the dead. Jesus wants to challenge the functional atheism of the Sadducees. And Jesus offers the gospel as a way to salvation through the power of God and the efficacy of his word. Jesus calls us away from our limited views of God and towards a picture of God who's greater than we could imagine or currently experience. God astonishes the weak mind of a secular man. So we're going to answer the real question, which is behind what the Sadducees are asking, which is, how do we combat the temptation to be stuck in the secular? And um, we're going to answer that in three points. Uh, First, we're going to refrain from taking sides. Second, we're going to put marriage in its proper place compared with eternity. And then third, we're going to believe that God is enough for me now and forever. So let's begin with refraining from taking sides. So our text begins the same day Sadducees came to him. So the first point Matthew wants us to understand is that Jesus had two opposing groups of people uh, coming after him in the same day. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Pastor Matt read to us last week about the Pharisees. Now, the, uh, Matthew, the um, author of Matthew, pre- presents the Pharisees and the Sadducees as kind of like opposite sides of the same coin. And when I first heard the comparison of the Sadducees and Pharisees to liberals and conservatives, um, the first time I heard that, I thought it was a bit anachronistic and even asegetical, meaning we're putting our own ideas into the text rather than pulling them out of the text. But there really are some fascinating similarities. Uh, So today, perhaps more than any other time that any of us have experienced in our lives, uh, liberals and conservatives are more polarized than ever. And it feels like Americans, we can't agree like on anything anymore. And uh, the more I learned about Pharisees and Sadducees, there really are some interesting comparisons. So I'll start with Sadducees. Uh, Sadducees would have been like the liberals. Uh, Both the Pharisees and the Sadducees sat on the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin just is a word that means seated together. 
And the Sanhedrin was a governing body of judges. So this sounds somewhat familiar to us. Now, the Sanhedrin was generally allowed to operate without interference from the Roman government, but not without impunity. Uh, so for example, um, they had to hand Jesus over to Pontius Pilate in order for Jesus to be uh, crucified. So there were 71 seated judges, and many of them were from a party called the Sadducees. And remember that Israel was a theocracy, which means that it was governed by the word of God using scripture. Except that these Sadducees had an interesting view of the Hebrew Bible, which is they only believed in the first five books of scripture. So notice when Jesus makes his argument in verse 32, he does it from the book of Exodus, one of the first five books. So not only do the Sadducees deny uh, the books of the prophets and the historical books and wisdom literature, but they also deny the resurrection. They did not believe uh, that God would resurrect the dead. They didn't believe in an afterlife, and they did not believe in angels or spirits. So they were really the liberals of their age. Uh, they were functional atheists. They represented secular man. This is the life you have, and that's it. Um, they were from an aristocratic, educated families who inherited the priesthood, and they held a place of status and honor and prestige in society with a lot of wealth. And consequently, because of their limited view of Scripture, they had little knowledge of God's Word, and they minimized the power of God's Word. So on the other side were the Pharisees. The Pharisees held a minority position on the Sanhedrin, but they were actively involved as religious leaders in the synagogue. And if the Sadducees were more uh, of the liberals in their view of Scripture and morality, the Pharisees were the moral conservatives. So fundamentalists, you might say. Definitely legalists in their view of Scripture and in keeping God's commandments. So Paul, remember the Apostle Paul, was a Pharisee. And he said that when he was a Pharisee, to the law he was blameless. Now, they didn't just keep the law, but they added to the law, elevating the traditions of man as equal or greater than the law of God. So Pharisees viewed themselves as morally superior in both their knowledge of scriptures and their ability to keep the scriptures. Pharisees had the opposite view of the Sadducees about believing in the resurrection of the dead, and they believed in the rest of the books of the Hebrew Bible. Okay, so again, two uh, politically divided parties and making moral and religious claims on the nation of Israel. Now, I'm not saying that this is a one-to-one -one for uh, liberals and conservatives example. I don't hear what I'm not saying. Um, but there are a lot of parallels, and I think they can help us understand what's going on here. It says, on the same day, the same day, both parties attacked Jesus. What is that telling us? Well, the first thing it's telling us is that Jesus is on no one's side. Pretty much every person who has ever lived has their opinion on the way things should be, Sadducees included. And Jesus' response to them is so blunt, it hurts. Verse 29, but Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Let me get into the gospel a little bit here. When you get the gospel, I mean, when you really get the gospel, you tend to lose sides. Meaning that in some way, in some fashion, you will upset people on both sides of an issue. Or to say it another way, you just won't fit into this world. You won't. And we need to get used to it. 
Because as we'll read later, this life that we have now is a shadow of what will be. And friends, more today than ever, we should expect to feel caught in the middle or outside. We should expect to feel like we're on the outside. When we see an issue in the world, we're just not going to fit into the Pharisees or the Sadducees. And it's because Jesus doesn't fit either. This is one of the ways you know if you're a follower of Jesus. This is the exact kind of thing Pastor Matt was preaching on a week ago concerning the Pharisees. If you fit perfectly into a camp or a political side or a particular party now, it's indicative of a person who is most likely either a moral relativist or a moral legalist. But the gospel is a different way entirely. People who believe the gospel believe in grace. So legalists will call us liberals. But people who believe in grace respond with obedience. And so liberals will call us conservative. You know, Jesus was more conservative probably than the most conservative person in this room. And he was more liberal than some of the most liberal people. You can't put him in a box. You can't label him the way that you would label someone for a political office. And he calls us to follow him, not the proverbial Pharisees or the Sadducees. So as we continue this sermon, I want you to be thinking in the back of your mind, in what ways am I taking sides today? In what ways am I going along with the crowd, secular man, rather than following Jesus? Look, remember, the temptation to follow society is extraordinary. To be secular itself is a temptation. Where is that temptation for you? So the next area Jesus combats is on the topic of marriage, and we're going to look at that. How do we combat the temptation to be stuck in the secular concerning marriage? And it's that we put marriage in its proper place compared with eternity. Now, here's the main point we need to remember about marriage. Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. And when we die, because we will all die, uh, in heaven that picture becomes a reality. Your marriages now are the trailer, and you're waiting for the real movie to begin. So the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, and they try to make Jesus look foolish. In Deuteronomy 25, there's a teaching that if the husband dies in order to provide for that wife, who's now widowed, the brother-in-law will marry the wife. Now remember, ancient Israel is not modern-day Pittsburgh. Women were not educated at that time. They had no job prospects. They were even more vulnerable to being physically attacked than they are today. And in many ancient Near Eastern contexts, women were treated worse than slaves. So becoming a widow was a particularly vulnerable and dangerous, dangerous place to be. This is why, by the way, that the early church was so concerned about caring for orphans and widows. So this teaching was called a leverate marriage. Leverate means brother-in-law. And it was intended to protect and care for vulnerable women. So the Sadducees used this law to make a ridiculous point. What if the husband dies and each time a new brother-in-law becomes the husband and then that husband dies and it happens seven times? If there's a resurrection, who will be that husband in the afterlife? Because presumably this woman's been married seven times. 
And I love Jesus' response, verse 29. Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, I don't know about you, but if I met, you know, a senator and he was challenging me on something, I don't know if I'd speak this way to him. Would you say to the senator, you are wrong? It's pretty confrontational. And Jesus says, verse 30, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. So Jesus teaches that there is no more marriage in the resurrection. So let's just take a moment to reflect on that. There's no more marriage in the resurrection. I take you, Camden Bianco, to be my lawfully wedded wife until death do we part. Remember this. Marriage is the trailer and resurrection is the movie. The picture in the Bible has always been that the covenant of marriage is meant to, to point us to something far greater. Christ united with his church. And the implications are actually really encouraging. So first, if your spouse is a believer, then you will know your spouse and presumably other members of your family in heaven. You won't just forget who they are if you're married. But the real picture we're given in Scripture is actually the church as the family. The Bible talks about treating each other as mothers or brothers or sisters or fathers. It uses familial language. So this is a little uncomfortable to say, but in heaven, the church will be more your family than your current family is. So all the introverts are like squeaming a little bit when they hear that. And the extroverts are like, hooray, more people. <laughs> it's hard to believe, but the picture in heaven is Christ and the church. We will know each other intimately without sin. The small picture we have now of our families and covenant relationships will be fully realized in the picture of the church resurrected. Now, maybe this makes you feel sad. You know, I love my spouse. I can't imagine not being married to my spouse. And this is the exact point Jesus is getting at. The temptation is to trade the trailer for the movie. Whatever resurrection will be like, it will be the actual castle, not the sand castle that we're building now. We won't miss anything. The intimacy that sex points to, the pleasure that sex brings, will be like a drop of water is to the power of the ocean. Whatever pleasures look like in heaven will be incomparable to the pleasures we feel now. Whatever fulfillment you feel in relationships now is incomparable to the experience when the church is fully united to God. Friends, the longing of every marriage is not the marriage. It's knowing God. And it's good news, too, if you're not married. For singles in the church who long to be married, there's a great lesson here. Marriage is not meant to be the all in all of this life. So if you miss out now on marriage, you really don't miss out on anything because one day you will experience the marriage of the Lamb, the wedding of the King. You'll know marriage in such an intimate way that everything that came before it will be minuscule. This also has implications for singles and the importance of their singleness. If you're not currently married or God has you single, and that means that at least for today, God has called you to be single. And I have good news for you. Jesus was single. 
and Paul was single. And I don't believe that was by accident. I believe both Jesus and Paul knew and understood that their marriage with the Lord far surpassed any earthly reality. Friends, we in the church can idolize marriage in an unhealthy way. We can make it everything, making it the movie when it's the trailer. And I'm not devaluing marriage, but we need to put it in its proper context in light of eternity and the resurrection. And Jesus understood this. So before we move on, I just want to challenge us a minute and ask where in your life you are making the trailer into the movie. Maybe you're married and you are trying to make your spouse the fulfillment of all your hopes and your dreams. Friends, only Jesus can do that. Maybe you're single and not being married is devastating for you. Again, are you making the trailer into the movie? Are you putting too much weight on this earthly reality and forgetting the marriage of the resurrection? Or maybe it's not marriage at all. Maybe it's some other longing you long to be fulfilled. And that reality is coming. It will be a reality one day for all those who hope in Jesus. So thinking about hoping in Jesus, I want to look at the last point, which is believing that God is enough for me now and forever. So Jesus goes on to say uh, to the Sadducees that they neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. Um, So there's some dual meaning in his words because out of the 39 books of the Old Testament, the Sadducees believed in five of them. But Jesus doesn't need the other 34 books to prove uh, that there is a resurrection. For the sake of the Sadducees, he quotes from Exodus 3, where we read about Moses uh, and the burning bush. And God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, how does this verse prove uh, that there, there, there is resurrection uh, in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament? So Tim Keller had a great comment on this. He said that every father knows that the worst thing you could say about your child is something like, Billy was my son, or Sarah was my daughter. We still use language like that when people pass away today. But God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. God is the God of the living, not the dead. Do you see? Jesus corrects the Sadducees on the reading of Scripture and shows that God can talk about these deceased patriarchs as if they are still living because of the resurrection. So this is good news for us, that God is God of the living, that there is hope after death, that death is not the end. So how can death not be the end for us? And the answer is because Jesus went through death on our behalf. So I forget who said this, but I thought it was a great image of what this looks like. Um, It's this picture of there were uh, two children sitting in the back of a car, um, and they were watching as the cars went by. And the one child says to the other, he says, do you see that car there passing by? Would you rather get hit by the shadow or by the car? And the boy looked puzzled, and he said, well, I'd rather get hit by the shadow. Well, two years before that, that boy's mother died of cancer. In explaining the resurrection to his child, the father said that when that boy's mother died, 
It was like she was hit by the shadow because Jesus was hit by the car. The reason we have eternal life is because Jesus, being full of grace and mercy, took the punishment that each and every one of us deserved. And the punishment of all people all time who would believe in him. So that we would all, all that we would experience when death comes is the shadow. But Jesus would be hit by the car. For those who believe in Jesus, passing into death is but passing through a shadow and waking up in eternal happiness in your Savior's arms. It's amazing that Jesus actually isn't more forceful <laughs> with the Pharisees, or sorry, the Sadducees, uh, than he is because Jesus died for them too. And guess what, church? We are all Sadducees and Pharisees, and Jesus died for us. I want you to locate yourself in the story. The real point of this passage isn't about marriage. It's about resurrection. I want you to challenge us by asking you to think about the areas of your life in which you're making the trailer into the movie. There are things in this life that will never be fulfilling. They will never satisfy you. They will never bring you complete happiness because they were never intended to because the real thing is coming. You know, one of the biggest driving forces I see uh, that move people around the world is career. Uh, people look to career to satisfy them. Uh, they give up good community, they'll give up good family, uh, friends who love them. They move to the other side of the world all for a paycheck. And they'll say to themselves something like, I'll make new friends. I'll find new community. My family will be fine. And they do it all for a better paycheck or more prestige because they long to be satisfied. But listen to the secret of Jesus. Only in the resurrection, only in the resurrection will the sign become the thing signified. By the way, it's not wrong to move for a job, of course. But when we move, we have to ask the question, is this where God is calling me? Is this where he is leading me? Is this where Jesus wants me to go? Or am I just doing this for my own fulfillment? Now we could say this about any subject, right? Why do I want to be married? Is Jesus calling me to marriage? Or is he calling me to singleness? Am I putting too much weight on the now and forgetting about the resurrection, that I will have these desires fulfilled? We could think about it for marriages that are lonely or struggling, or a spouse who suffers from uh, trauma or injury. These things are not the way it's supposed to be. But one day, in the resurrection, they will be made right. Therefore, I have hope. So do you see? Do you see how important the resurrection is to your lives now? It puts everything in context. It puts everything in perspective. You know, sometimes when I'm stressed about some activity the next day, whatever it might be, maybe something that brings me anxiety, I'll write down in my journal... I'll write, what is this thing compared with eternity? What is this thing I'm so afraid of compared with an eternal life with my Savior? And it's really helpful. It puts that problem in place, in perspective. I want to end with this point in verse uh, 33. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So the crowd was astonished for two reasons. Uh, the first is that Jesus spoke with such authority to the Sadducees. And the second is that his teaching was so good, it was so right, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees couldn't refute it. But look, we know something that the crowd didn't know. We know the Savior. 
we see the groom in front of us, and we the church are the bride. And if you get nothing out of this passage, please get this, that when you're tempted this week to the secular, to sin, or maybe depression because life isn't what you want it to be, or you put too much pressure on your spouse, or if you're longing for marriage, or you're stuck in a bad marriage, or whatever the thing may be, go to Jesus. Go to the bridegroom. Run into his arms. Cry out to him. Tell him your sadness. Put your stresses on him. Tell him your hopes and dreams. Allow Jesus to astonish you. When we go to Jesus and when we trust him, not even death can keep its sting. The Bible says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, we go to him in prayer. Let's do that now.